I'll be reading from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 today. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Good morning. On Wednesday, a day after the company announced a five-for-one stock split, Tesla jumped 13%, reports Business Insider. The automakers gained uh, continued on Thursday, bringing the two-day total to 20%, and Tesla stock has risen 280% year-to-date. Um, this has been fueled by solid vehicle sales, blockbuster earnings, and, quote, its eligibility for inclusion in the popular S&P 500 index. And now I'm not recommending that you go out <clears throat> and buy Tesla stock. Um, it did get me thinking about uh, how the stock markets work, or uh, more like what I, how I don't really know much about how the stock market works. But as I did some research, this is basically how it works. A stock exchange is a marketplace where you can buy a part of a company in the form of a stock. Okay? And your hope is that from the time that you buy the stock to the time that you sell the stock, you will have gained something. You will have uh, a profit. The company you will have invested in will have more gains than losses over that time. And I learned that 55% of Americans, likely many of you, uh, own stock individually or stocks included in a mutual fund or a retirement account like a 401k or IRA. And trillions upon trillions of dollars are traded on stock exchanges every single day. So what, what words could be used to describe what a, what a stockholder is after? They're after profits. They want payoffs, dividends, earnings, yield. I'm going to choose the word gain. You see, we give up something. We invest something. We run the risk of losing something, namely some money, in order that we might gain something more, something better. And I want to tie this into the story of humanity. So... In the story of humanity, you, you, you need not look any further than Genesis 3 to see Adam and Eve's stock exchange, exchanging 
the presence and perfection and protection of life with God in Eden for the crippling and crumbling and cursed life removed from God in his garden. In his letter to the Roman Christians, the apostle Paul describes how we, how we all have participated in this, how we all have made this exchange for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Therefore, they, all of us, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And, th and this brings us to Paul's letter to the Philippians. So in the second chapter, it's, it's one of the most famous chapters uh, in, in the whole Bible. It's my boss's favorite chapter, probably. Uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 8 describes how this exchange that we made can be reversed by someone else's exchange. And Paul describes how he, Jesus, was in the form of God, but he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul understood well what we mean when we say that Jesus saves. What we mean by the gospel, what we mean by grace. And it is this, only by what Jesus accomplished may we be forgiven and reconciled and made new. And so if, if you're taking notes, either in a notebook or a notes app on your phone, I encourage you to write down the purpose of this passage, which I'm about to give you. And this is for, this is for all of us. This is to those of us who are confident this morning, those of us who are questioning to those who are perhaps content with complacency, to those who are weary from striving, to those who sit in this auditorium wearing a mask, to those who are on the live stream, to the church in Philippi 2,000 years ago, to us today, Paul wrote Philippians 3, 1 through 11, with this singular aim to communicate this radiant truth. What is it? All I once thought gain I must count as loss to gain the eternal joy of knowing Jesus. So write that down if you would. Pull out your phone if you need to. You can text it to yourself and you can think about it later. All I once thought gain, I must count as loss to gain the eternal joy of knowing Jesus. That's what this is all about. And we're going to consider three things. One, Paul's concern Two, Paul's confidence. And three, Paul's conclusion or his conversion. To begin, Paul tells us to rejoice, but quickly follows with a warning. So let's look at verses one through three together. This is point number one, Paul's concern. Paul writes, finally, my brothers, rejoice. And he qualifies that this joy is located somewhere in someone in the Lord. Not, 
Not rejoice in someone else, not rejoice in something else, but rejoice in the Lord. And this is something that evidently Paul has communicated to the Philippians before. Certainly when he was with them, he would have spoken of this joy in Jesus. Um, But he's also described it multiple times throughout his letter to the Philippians. He often writes of joy in this letter and he says it will guard them. This message is safe for them. Why does he say that? Well, it's because danger's lurking. Look at verse two with me. He has this repeated phrase, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And it seems like Paul has has oscillated between two emotions right here quite significantly. At one moment, he's saying rejoice. And the next moment, he's calling people dogs and evildoers. So we have to wonder what, what the fuss is all about. Although the Philippian church was likely made up of primarily Gentile believers who were not ethnically Jewish, there were some in and around the church who believed and maintained that following Jewish rituals were a necessary part of being a Christian. In in Galatians, if you're familiar with that letter, uh, Paul calls these people Judaizers. And here he calls them something much stronger. He, He describes how as wild dogs prowl around, so these Judaizers prowl around like dogs. They are at work, but they're not doing gospel work. They are doing evil work. They are evildoers. They're making an effort to get other Christians to conform to the old covenant sign of male circumcision. And Paul says, for this reason, they're simply mutilators of the flesh. So we may think, (laughs) okay, Paul, I I get that we don't have to do all that old covenant thing with circumcision anymore, but, but what's the big deal with these Judaizers? Why not live and let live? What's the big deal? Well, Paul shows the care of a good parent here. He seeks the joy of his spiritual children and will loudly raise his voice before they fall prey to those who would seek to devour the very source and the aim of their joy. We would do well to heed his warning. So we must look out. Look out. Look out. Why? Because because we and those around us are prone to distort the gospel. So to contrast what it is that Paul is speaking against, he makes a a clear distinguishing argument about what true Christians look like. So look at verse three with me. For we are the real circumcision, that is the spiritual Israel, the people of God, the heirs of the promised Abraham, who... Three things, worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So let's look at each of these three indicators together. Number one, we Christians worship by the spirit of God. Christian worship is different than all other kinds of worship. How so? Christian worship is from the inside out. I'm talking about worship that is produced by, enabled by, directed by the Spirit of God. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
And from his spirit inside of you, he produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So we worship by the spirit of God. That distinguishes Christians. Number two, we glory in Christ Jesus. And, And this is a pretty easy distinction. It comes with the name, right? Elsewhere, Paul writes that, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This idea of boasting in Christ or exulting in Christ or, or glorifying or magnifying Christ repeatedly comes up in Paul's writings throughout the New Testament. And, and he says that that aim of our worship distinguishes us as Christians. We glory in Christ Jesus. And number three, finally, we, we put no confidence in the flesh. So this, this would be the opposite of glorying in Christ. If you're not glorying in Christ, then you're placing confidence in something else. But Paul says, for those of us who are Christians, we put no confidence in the flesh. If we glory in Christ, we place all our confidence in him. We trust his work on our behalf. Therefore, the obvious conclusion for Paul is that we must put zero confidence in the flesh. But this is the very thing that the Judaizers are doing. They are, they're placing confidence in the flesh. And so they are what you might call legalists. How many of you are familiar with the term legalism? Many of you. The word is often, I think, misused by Christians and non-Christians alike simply as a synonym for narrow-mindedness. But that's not what legalism is. That waters it down way too much. Legalism is a bitter thing. Legalism is a matter of trying to earn by human effort good standing with God. Legalism trusts in our obedience, not in Christ's obedience. By adding to or replacing the merit that Christ has earned, grace is displaced and replaced by legalism. It's a cancer that threatens your life and only the gospel provides a cure. So Paul says, we must place no confidence in the flesh. Legalism has no place in the Christian life. So look out, look out. Look out. It's at this point that Paul welcomes us into his own testimony. He's going to get real personal as he makes his argument against legalism. So we're going to turn to the second point, Paul's confidence. Verses four through six. Look at verse four with me. Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence, In the flesh. That is to say that, you know, that's not to say that Paul is uh, adding his name to those, uh, to those Judaizers, to those legalists in some way that he has earned something on his own account. No, but in, in human terms, he's exposing the fault of the legalist doctrine. He says, if, if anyone else thinks that he could possibly earn any of this, that he could possibly merit anything, that he could possibly have reason for confidence in the flesh. I have more. That is to say, if anyone could have good standing with God, it would be me. 
And so then he launches into what would be a truly impressive list to, to any Jew or Judaizer of his day with seven distinctions that he claims of himself. So look at verse five and six. He says, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul was, was circumcised following the teaching and tradition of the Jews. He, he was ethnically Jewish and able to identify his honored tribe. In other words, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. If there was any distinction, Paul had it. And as Paul grew up, he studied the Old Testament. He was, he was a devout Jew. He studied the laws and the customs, and he trained to be one of their religious leaders, a Pharisee. And under Jewish law, he was considered blameless. And we must not forget to mention how Paul then saw at the time viewed Christians as blasphemers and false prophets. In Acts 22 and elsewhere, Paul tells us about how at that time he persecuted and, and, and even killed Christians. He hated Christians. He hated Christ until he met Christ. And it's at this point that we return to this key idea for this whole passage, this idea of gain. Paul considered that his effort earned him something. So, so think for a moment with me. What do you consider gain? If I asked you to write out one or two things that you consider uh, maybe most valuable to you, what would you write down? Perhaps I could ask the person next to you. What would they say? Um, it could be your level of income or education could be good health or money in your bank accounts. It could be your body type or personal appearance. It could be recognition or promotion at work. It could be having respectful children. It could be your boyfriend or your girlfriend. It could be valuing that consistent Bible reading and, and church attendance. What, what makes you feel good about yourself? What do you consider gain? Well, we must come to realize that whether we assign these things as virtues or as vices, our hope, our trust, our confidence cannot be in these things. Our only confidence must be in Christ. Pastor Tony Merida summarizes Paul's point like this. Don't put your confidence in a ritual. Don't put your confidence in a race. Don't put your confidence in a rank. Don't put your confidence in your tradition. Don't put your confidence in rule keeping. Don't put your confidence in zeal. Don't put your confidence in obedience to the law. Don't put your confidence in anything other than Christ. All of this, though, Paul thought was gain. That is, until he met Jesus. And Jesus changed his life. So let's look at point number three, Paul's conversion in verses seven through 11. If Paul had been an investor in a stock exchange, his whole life would have been spent investing in his striving 
in his status, seeing that his stocks soared. He had all this stock in Saul Incorporated. (laughs) And he thought all of these things that he had acquired in his life and all of these things of who he was and what he did, he thought of them as gain, but not anymore. Not anymore. He made an exchange the day he met Jesus. And in verses 7 and 8, he writes about his conversion. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Indeed, I count everything as loss. For the sake of Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Do you hear that? Counting as loss, counting as loss, suffering loss, and counting them as rubbish. All of the stock that he had, what was he going to do with it? Paul didn't sell his stocks. He forfeited them. What pride he once held on to, he now abandoned. And Paul's emphasis is not simply on past conversion, on a moment in time that he counted as loss in order to gain something else. No, Paul counted as loss and suffered the loss of all things, but he also says, indeed, I still count everything as loss. I still count them as rubbish, present tense. I count them as rubbish, as refuse, as dung, as, as something to be thrown away and discarded. So, so here's my question. What would cause someone to make this exchange? What would cause someone to give up all that they had worked their entire life to gain? I don't know if you have any dreams for your life, But let's say you do, and let's say you're so, so close to fulfilling your dreams. You know, maybe it's it's building your own home. Maybe it's getting a college education. Maybe it's getting married. I have no idea what it would be for you, but but you have a dream, and you've worked your life (laughs) hoping that you would one day accomplish this dream. You've built it up over all this time. What would cause someone to give that up? Everything that they thought gain. Why in the world would someone forfeit their stock? Why suffer the loss of all things? That sounds crazy. And if you're like me, and and that doesn't seem to make sense, then lean in with me as Paul describes his joy in making this exchange. In verses 7 and And eight and nine, he describes why he once thought gain is now counted as loss. He says three things. For the sake of Christ, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord, and in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Jesus is better. Jesus is better By counting all as loss, Paul received his greatest gain. And so the principle holds true for us. If we count all as loss, 
we too can receive our greatest gain, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the Good Shepherd. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's our rock and our redeemer. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the light of the world that shines in our darkness. He became one of us. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose for us. He is radiant and glorious and excellent and worthy. The person of Jesus outshines all the rest. The work of Jesus outshines all the rest, even the Hebrew of Hebrews. And Paul was undone. I've done a lot of thinking over the last few years about the difference between intellectual assent, agreeing to something logically, and true belief between knowing about God and knowing God. And the only explanation I can give for such a radical transformation in Paul's life is that he had an encounter with God. It wasn't, it wasn't that he knew about God, it's that he came to know God. Some 600 years before Paul's conversion, God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah saying, this is my covenant that I will make with the people of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me for from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise to Jeremiah, to Israel. Jesus himself declared in Matthew 11, verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by the Father and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So these are two very different questions. I could ask you, do you know about Jesus? That's very different than, do you know Jesus? It's the difference between what do you know and who do you know? Knowing Jesus means you're forgiven. Knowing Jesus means you are reconciled. Knowing Jesus means you've been made new. Knowing Jesus means the Spirit lives within you. Knowing Jesus means you're heaven-bound. Do you know Jesus? Do you know, like in verse 8, what it means to be found in him? Well, maybe you're not sure, but Paul's a really good pastor. He doesn't just leave us hanging. He identifies the one thing that gives us confidence that we know Jesus. Do you want to know how you know Jesus? Look at verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Can you spot where this is? But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Faith. That's, that's it. 
It's faith. By faith, we exchange our imperfect righteousness that comes from us for the perfect righteousness that comes from God. By faith, we exchange a righteousness that depends on the law for a righteousness that depends on faith in Christ because he fulfilled every part of the law. So how do we gain Christ? How do we know him and how can we be found in him? Faith. It's simpler, (laughs) but harder than you think. Pride is what is natural. Striving even is what is natural. Trying to obtain by human effort is natural. What is unnatural, what is supernatural is faith. Faith is believing God. Faith is exchanging confidence in the flesh for confidence in Jesus. This is why Paul writes in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. When Paul counted all things as loss, as rubbish, he forfeited his stock. Commentator William Hendrickson says that his helps became hindrances. His stepping stones became stumbling blocks. Paul was left with nothing in his bank account at this point except one thing. The righteousness of God through Christ And that was enough. That was more than enough. That was his reason for being willing to call all other things loss was that he might gain that, that he might gain Jesus. So what does faith look like for Paul? What does faith look like for you and for me? As you consider exchanging what you once thought gain for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Look at the final two verses, verses 10 through 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. By faith, We're united to God through Christ. We're united to Christ in his life and death and resurrection. This is is why God gave us baptism. It's our way of identifying outwardly with an inward reality that we have placed our faith in Jesus and therefore are united with him in death and life. So Romans 6, verses 4 through 11, Paul actually describes this very thing, this united with Christ. He says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought 
to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And now we have died with Christ. We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. This is what Paul means when he says that he wants to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, sharing with him his life, even his suffering. When we're united with Jesus, we're going to experience suffering. Paul certainly did. We die to sin daily. But we're enabled to do that because we have new life and a new spirit within us. So think about the life that we now live. James 1 verse 2 says that we can count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In death... Romans 8, verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, you put, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we must daily die over and over and over again to sin. And think about the resurrection. In, in verse 10, you, you, you might even, or excuse me, in verse 11, you might even think that, that Paul wavers, you know, by any means possible, I might but we shouldn't view this as a lack of confidence. If anything, this is deep humility because Paul never arrived and he didn't adopt an attitude that he had spiritually arrived and neither have we in that sense. It, it, it's kind of like I, this morning I thought of um, the last book in the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, The Last Battle. If you've read that, there's a character in Lewis's heaven that says, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up and further in. That's what Christ calls us to in this new resurrected life. To be united with him by faith means that we share in his life. We share in his death. We will share in his resurrection. We will be with him. So do you consider yourself a good person? Do you think, like Henry Ward Beecher, that every charitable act, every good deed is a stepping stone to heaven? Consider Paul's concern, point one, Paul's concern for you. Grace robbing legalism threatens your joy in Jesus. So friend, look out, look out, look out. Have you grown proud of what you've become? Be honest. 
Are you proud of what you've accomplished or how people regard you? Consider Paul's confidence. He forfeited his stock in himself and in this world because he knew that he was already bankrupt. Those things had no value. It was worthless. So what are you holding on to that is worthless in the sight of God and in light of eternity? Finally, do you perceive that the surpassing worth is in knowing Jesus? Consider Paul's conversion. He suffered the loss of all things that he might gain Christ. Do you count it gain? Do you count your gain as loss compared to knowing Jesus? There's a quote I came across that I really love from Elise Fitzpatrick. She says, my life now is no longer about me. It's not about me and how I'm doing in the day to day, but it is in fact a resting and rejoicing in what Christ has done for me and then living in the light of that. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be found in Jesus, to know Christ. Paul wrote Philippians to a small church in the first century. And by God's grace, this book was written for you and for me. Nearly 2,000 years later, this chapter, these verses, 3, 1 through 11, magnify this radiant truth that all that I once thought gain, I must count as loss to gain the eternal joy of knowing Jesus. And so I'll say it one more time for you. If you would receive this, believe this, trust this, reject confidence in the flesh and place confidence in Jesus, this truth can set you free. All you once thought gain, you must count as loss to gain the eternal joy of knowing Jesus.